uh, originally I had a very long title for this, uh, <laughs> uh, this last episode, this last part, uh, but in the process, uh, my wife was saying it's too long, all right, so I just shortened it to steady, steadfast, and serving the Lord as the bottom line, okay? But first, a quick recap, very important recap. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, all scripture is profitable, okay? Uh, that means we can draw applications from uh, Genesis to Revelations. It can be written to Israel, it can be written to the church, written to the Gentiles, but we can draw and always draw application. At the same time, we are told in 2 Timothy 2.15, we must study the Word of God. Study means investigate, ask questions, listen, query, all right, clarify, study to be approved to God. We study to be approved to God because we want to know His Word, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. So when we come to Matthew 24 and 25, we need to know who is Matthew writing to? What is he recording? What is the context? And we must do what we call, there must be what we call hermeneutical integrity. Hermeneutics is the interpretation of scriptures. Integrity means there must be soundness and wholeness. Okay? So last weekend and this weekend, we are going through verse by verse, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And we know that it is specifically written for Israel, all right, for the disciples relating to Jesus' second coming, the events relating to His coming. Okay? So, uh, a quick recap, Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is a chapter in which Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, where He pronounced seven woes upon them, because here are the religious leaders representing the whole nation of Israel. They rejected him and they did all those things that blocked people from coming to know the Lord and so on and so forth. And he told them in verse 37 of chapter 23 of Matthew, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Verse 38, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Verse 39, For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me anymore until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Alright? In, in layman terms, they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They did not receive Jesus when he was on earth as someone sent from the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is Yahweh. Jehovah, I am. They did not receive him as someone sent from the Father God. They rejected him and they crucified him. That's why Jesus pronounces, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he, who? He, the Lord Jesus, who comes in the name on behalf of the eternal, everlasting, sovereign creator God. That's what he's saying here. Very, very, very significant and profound. And then you go on to chapter, uh, this is a messianic greeting. They, the Jews and the leaders, must accept him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Earlier on, the Jewish leaders led the entire nation of Israel to reject the Messiahship of Jesus. But there will come a day where the nation will accept Jesus as the Messiah. They will see him as the Lamb whom they crucified. They're going to wail, they're going to mourn, they're going to cry. We read that in Zechariah. And when will this happen? It will happen during the seven tribulation years. So Matthew 23 ends with Jesus talking about His second coming. 
And Matthew 24 and 25 is an elaboration of the seven tribulation years leading to His second coming. So we start with Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, 2 and 3, where the disciples asked Jesus three questions. Lord, when will these things be? Well, are those things referring to verse 1 and 2, when the temple will be destroyed, where not one stone will be left upon the other? Then the second question, what will be the sign of your coming? And, when, and the third question, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So the first question, when will these things be? This relates to the destruction of the temple in verse 1 and 2. The temple that stood before them is what is known as Herod's temple. It's the second temple. The first temple is Solomon's temple. All right? Herod's temple was the renovated temple that was built in the time of Haggai, Zerubbabel, all right, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and so forth. And then the third temple is what will be in the, uh, in the seven years of tribulation. It will be built, all right, and it will be functioning at the start of the tribulation years. This second temple was destroyed by the Romans. Why? Because Israel did not recognize Jesus at the time of His visitation. They rejected Him as the Messiah. And we go next to the last question. Lord, when will be the end of the age? This one we know very clearly, all right? The end of the age will be at the end of the, uh, the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, and then Jesus will sit on His throne on earth in Jerusalem. He will reign over the entire earth for 1,000 years. Then all the covenant for Israel will be fulfilled. They will all return to the land. And after the 1,000 years, the great white throne judgment, the judgment of the books, all right, in Revelation 20, and after that, the end of time. It's called the end of the age. It's called the day of God, mentioned by Peter in 2 Peter 3, 12. That is the beginning of eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. Then we look at the second question. Lord, what will be the sign of your coming? So Jesus answered this question in the entire rest of chapter 24 and chapter 25, where he was talking about all those events happening, which we talked about last week. And in particular, Jesus drew reference to the book of Daniel in mentioning the abomination of desolation committed by the Antichrist in the middle of the seven years. It's a very significant sign. And I submit to you that is the sign. Because this is the sign, the reference point Jesus was telling the Jews, the believing Jews who were believing at that time, pay attention to that sign. And when you see the sign, what should you do? You do all those things. So they understood. The disciples and the Jews, they understood what was prophesied by Daniel regarding the abomination of desolation. So I submit to you that these signs, all right, is the sign of the abomination of desolation in the middle of the seven years. The seven years is broken up exactly into three and a half years and three and a half years. The first three and a half years is known as tribulation. The last three and a half years is known as the great tribulation. And after that, Jesus is going to come back in the big battle of Armageddon, and then that's it. Then He will establish His millennial kingdom on earth. What will be the sign of your coming? This definitely does not refer to the rapture. Is Matthew 24 profitable for us to learn? Yes, we can learn lessons from Matthew 24 and 25. 
But you look at Matthew 24, as hard as you look at Matthew 24, you cannot see the rapture. Because at the time of the, this, uh, this, this Oliver's discourse, the rapture remained a mystery, which was only revealed to the Apostle Paul, which is our scripture meditation for this weekend, from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 55. Last weekend, I mentioned five things, but I'll shorten it. There are at least three things mentioned in Matthew 24 that has no relevance to the church. At least three things. Number one, the temple. There's no relevance for us because the, the Jews is still reverting to the old covenant to bring the animal sacrifices. For us, we have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. We have already accepted Jesus as the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the entire world, our past, our present, and our future sins. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit because now we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, the perfect Lamb of God, so that now the Holy Spirit can dwell in us. Secondly, when Jesus told the disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. No relevance to the church. The church is everywhere today. Every believer, every Jew, every Gentile who believes in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we are the church. We cannot go to Judea to flee to the mountains. No relevance for us. And thirdly, he says that make sure when that happens, it doesn't occur on the Sabbath. Today, we have the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord Jesus Himself. Every day is holy. Every day is sanctified. But for the Jews, up to this day, if you've been to Israel, they observe the, the Sabbath at the dusk of Friday all the way to the dusk of Saturday. That is the Sabbath, where almost all public transportation comes to a standstill. So Jesus answered this question, the sign of His coming, for the rest of chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew where they talk, he talked about many signs and the sign, all right? We covered a fair bit of it all the way, Matthew 24 to uh, verse 31, all right? That was our message last week. This is our roadmap. Last week, we covered the happenings during the first three and a half years, and we drew parallels of it to the six seal judgments in Revelations. We talk about happenings and mid-tribulation, what they should do, that is the sign. When you see that happen, what do, what do the... Uh, Israel need to do. And the happenings, we give a summary statement. This is the beginning of sorrows. I submit to you, in Jesus' mind, He was having in mind the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments that will follow the seal judgments. Happenings in the last three and a half years. Today, we're going to cover the rest of these headings. The five parabolic illustrations. Okay? Now, we must be consistently consistent. Matthew 24 is what we call, scholars all call this the Oliver Discourse. It means on the Mount of Olives, Jesus was having this dialogue with His disciples, all right? in particular the four disciples, James, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. All right? uh, so He was talking about the events of the tribulation. The five parables must drive home, these are illustrations, it must drive home the point of what he has been teaching. The parables are connected to the preceding 30 over verses about this discourse, about this eschatology, the end times. All the five parables form one group. The parables must refer to the same events that Jesus talked about all the way up to verse 31. They all refer to the second coming of Christ, not the rapture of the church. The truths relating to the rapture of the church are revealed exclusively in the New Testament epistles. 
All right, we read that in 1 Corinthians, we read that in Thessalonians, and so forth. Now, these are the five, what we call the five parabolic illustrations. They are not new teachings. They are parabolic illustrations to drive home, to enhance, to amplify what Jesus has talked about up to the point of time. All right, so let's go through one by one. Firstly, the fig tree. Matthew 24, now we go to verse 32. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. Repeat. First line, learn. He's giving an illustration. He's elaborating. He's driving home the point. The fig tree. All right, you can read the rest of the verses on your own. What he's saying here is this is an illustration of a major sign when the end times are set to begin. A parable of a fig tree coming out of his dormant face at the end of winter. At the end of winter, the fig tree appears dead. <clears throat> Why? There are no leaves. <clears throat> but it is not truly dead, as the leaves will emerge in spring. If you are familiar with the seasons, all right, if you live in the north, you will be familiar with the seasons and the tree. So he says, when the fig tree put forth its first leaves, what does it mean? It, which means that it's signaling a season change from winter to spring. And when it comes to spring, when the leaves come out in full blown, the next season will be summer. Right? Winter, spring, and summer. So when the leaves show up, summer is right around the corner, and soon the fig tree will produce fruit in summer. So in these illustrations, the leaves of the fig tree could be considered as a sort of a clock. And even if you have no idea, if you live in Israel or in the North Hemisphere, what month, if you have no idea what month it was, you could tell that summer was near by watching a fig tree blossom. The sign, alright? Uh, Jesus chose a fig tree for this parable because a fig tree is a classic representation of Israel. Israel will serve as God's clock to tell us when the end times are here. So for a time, in fact for a good almost short of 2,000 years, <clears throat> Israel, now when we talk about Israel, we're talking about, about a people group, the Jews, alright? Israel appeared lifeless because the nation of Israel was outside the land for centuries. After Jerusalem was trampled uh, in AD 70, all the way until the early 20th century, all right? There was no Jews in the land of Palestine and you know, what is Israel today? And many have concluded Israel is dead. Even the church in the last three, four, five, six, one thousand years before the 20th century thought that the, the Israel is dead and they came up with the dominion uh, doctrine saying that the church has replaced Israel. The church is the spiritual Israel. Now as we look back, that is wrong. It's a wrong doctrine. So when Israel comes back to life, so to speak, we know the end times are near. In effect, Israel returned as a nation in 1948 on the world stage is the first significant sign that the end has come. We read the book of Acts, for example. He said the Acts is the last days. All right? As we have, we have concluded, it, could, it would have been the last days had they received Jesus as the Messiah. It would just be 5,000 years. All right? Instead of now being the, the church being inserted for another 2,000 years. Matthew 24, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Right? That's what Jesus said. 
Now, what are all these things that will take place? There are the many signs and the sign of Matthew 24, verse 4 to verse 31, all that we talked about last week, from deception to wars to earthquakes to pestilences and so on and so forth. They are the events happening from the beginning of the seven tribulation years, paralleling the seal judgments of Revelation 6. This generation refers to the generation that sees all these things take place. Jesus is saying that when you see events of the tribulation take place, you will know His second coming is here. The Son of Man is coming, as mentioned in verse 39, 29 and 30. But there's another way of interpreting this phrase is to look at the entire nation of Israel as a new generation, not merely one birth generation. So many scholars, many people, I think of one generation, is it 40 years? Is it 70 years? Is it 80 years? Is it 100 years? All right, and which is why they try to add this 70, 80, or 100 to 1948, and this is where we have all the date setting. All right, we're all over the place. This generation, this way of interpreting is can, we, can mean this whole nation of Israel won't pass away until all these things come to pass. When we see the nation of Israel returning to life, a new generation of Jews living in the land, we know the end is near. All right, so this another way of interpreting is to look at the whole nation of Israel. So Israel is God's clock, telling us that the end time events have started. And once the clock has started, there is nothing in the universe that can stop the events that follow. Jesus adds that heaven and earth will pass away, but His words will never pass away. And therefore, when we see Israel return to the land today, where it is, geogra it is geography, everything else Jesus said will happen. And while we wait on the earth, we think that it's slow. When it happens, it's going to happen very fast. Okay? So that's about the fig tree. Uh, as a parabolic illustration. The next one is the days of Noah. Verse 36 onwards, Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Okay? And uh, he says that uh, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and so forth. Verse 39, they did not know until the flood came. Alright? So let's um, unpack this. Of the day and the hour, no one knows. Here is Jesus speaking <clears throat> as the Son of Man. The Son of God, Jesus was the Son of God. He became the Son of Man in flesh and blood. And as the Son of Man, He did not know when He will return the second time. Only the Father. But after the rapture, and specifically after the midpoint of the tribulation, the alert believer in the tribulation will know at least the day of the second coming. Repeat, if you are, you are a remnant-believing Jew, all right, during the tribulation, when you see the, the, the Antichrist committing the abomination of desolation, you know the days are numbered. You know at least the day. If you do not know the hour, you know the day of Christ's second coming. This second illustration, Jesus mentioned a comparison. Alright? A comparison between His second coming and the days of Noah. He's talking about the likeness is seen, and what is this likeness in this comparison? It's the suddenness of the coming of the flood judgment and the unpreparedness of the world for it. Noah, according to scholars, took as long as 75 years. Some scholars say it took as long as 120 years for him to build the ark. And they were all mocking him and so forth. They were totally unprepared. Unprepared, it was so unexpected. The flood 
was the flood until it had already come upon the unbelieving world. Similarly, the second coming, those who were stuck in the seven tribulation years. All right. So what is the issue here? It's an issue of being prepared. This is where all scripture is profitable. We can learn from this and learn to watch and pray and watch and be prepared. The lack of preparedness is re reinforced by the examples cited by the Lord. They were eating and drinking. They were absorbed by worldly pursuits. They were paying no attention to all the solemn warnings, as is happening today. This message about the rapture, this message about the end times, all right, uh, is not taught generally throughout the world in a lot of churches. All right? Everything, uh, everybody seems as if the life was go on and continue. There's the love of the world they did not understand. They did not heed the word. They did not grasp the significance until the flood hits them. Then, the unbelieving world will understand, but it is too late. We are always responsible for what we hear, what we know. We are always responsible for the warnings. All right? So when Jesus was on earth, no one knew the date of His second coming. So Noah's days were analogous to the last days. The unsafe in Noah's days, the unsafe in Noah's days did not know when the flood will come. But the safe, Noah and his family who entered the ark, they knew exactly, and they knew exactly seven days in advance. How do we know that? Genesis chapter 7, verse 4, where God told Noah, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. God gave Noah very specific instructions. Go and get seven pairs of the clean animals, all right, and two pairs of the unclean animals and so forth. And then bring them into the ark. And after that, seven days, the flood came. So seven is a complete number. We knew, all right? So after the seven years of tribulation, for sure, the second coming of the Lord. The third parable is the comparison uh, of the two men and the two women. And the principle here <clears throat> is about separation, okay? Um, and they did not know until the flood came. And then so there'll be two men in the field. One will be taken, the other... Uh, left behind, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left behind. Watch your thought, for you do not know what hour, now he's talking about the hour of the Lord's second coming. Okay? So this third illustration Jesus mentioned is about the separation between the two men and the two women. One is a believer, the other is not a believer. What is the context? The context is not the rapture, it is about the second coming. And therefore we need to ask the specific question, who goes where? Where is the where? All right? One is taken, one left behind. Okay? And this is where you have all kinds of views. All right? Some say that this is pertains to the rapture. But we need to look at the context again. And let's differentiate. Now, in the rapture, believers are snatched away to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture is secret. The whole world will know. You only realize it later. Right? So in the, in the rapture, we will all be caught up. Hapazo. All right? uh, the word rapture is the Latin word. It's not the Greek word. The Greek word is hapazo. All right? We will all be caught up, snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. And the key point about the rapture, about the safe, is that we are always with the Lord. We are with Him thereafter. Okay? So we are separated unto Him in the rapture. Whereas for the unbeliever, the words in yellow, the unbeliever is left behind on earth to go through the seven years of the tribulation. 
plus the time gap after the rapture. Okay? But at the second coming, all right, the principle is the same. Believers are always with the Lord. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord on earth, to the earth, at the battle of Armageddon. And after that, the believer is left on earth with the Lord to reign with the Lord in the millennial messianic kingdom. All right? So if you follow this principle, believers are always with the Lord, unbelievers are separated away from the Lord. Then we can interpret that, 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 that parable uh, consistently. All right? So here we go. At the second coming, who is taken away? The unbeliever is taken away in judgment. Whereas the believer is left on earth to be with the Lord, to enter the millennial messianic kingdom with the Lord. This is to be consistent in interpreting the passage, the context of the passage, the focus of the passage, which is about the tribulation and Jesus' second coming. Verse 40 to 41 are illustrating that which preceded in the last few verses. So those not prepared in the days of Noah, what will happen to them? Those not prepared means the unbelieving ones, they will be taken away in judgment as what happened in Noah's days by the flood. So you look at Matthew 24, 39. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Consistently consistent. Believers are always with the Lord. All right? In the case of the rapture, they're caught up to be with the Lord. In the case of the second coming, the unbelievers are taken away in judgment. Believers remain with the Lord on earth to reign and to rule with Him. Verse 39, Noah, the emphasis is on unbelievers being taken away in the judgment of the flood. Verse 40 to 41, drive home the point by a couple of examples of the separation. The unbelieving will be swept away by the judgment. The believing Noah and family, they were left in the ark. The ark represents the presence of God and they are not destroyed by the flood judgment. So big picture, the Lord here is talking about events in the tribulation leading up to His return, followed by these parables that drive home the same point, drive home the same principles, the same lessons related to His entire discourse. And nowhere in Matthew 24 is the rapture or the church to be found. Because before the tribulation occurs, the church would have already been raptured. Okay? So we need to be consistently consistent all right, in understanding Matthew 24. The fourth and the fifth parabolic uh, illustration, I'll combine these two together. All right? This passage in, is in Matthew 24, verse 42 to 51. It's about the faithful and wise house servant. All right? uh, it says, watch therefore, talk, you, you mark the keywords, to watch, to be ready. You do not know which hour your master will return. All right? uh, and so on and so forth. So, the owner received warning of a thief coming to break into his house. Alright? So when you have warning, the thief is going to come at 3.45 a.m. What do you do? You stand guard. You make sure your doors are double locked. You have five Alsatian dogs. Turn on all your alarm, alright? And ask the police to hide somewhere in the corner or whatever, alright? Owner received warning of the thief coming to break into the house. The owner had to prepare by setting a watch to guard. Knowledge must lead to a conscientious action in the light of the impending event. We need to be alert concerning His coming. Unbelievers will not be alert because of their deadness to the things of God. Unbelievers are not interested in the things of God. 
And therefore, for believers, we should be interested in the things of God, what is happening. All right? Israel was not prepared and ready when Jesus came the first time. They were totally not prepared. But the remnant Jews will be prepared, ready, and enduring to, to the end during the tribulation years to anticipate His second coming. And if you read Revelation, they are crying out to the Lord, Lord, how long more? How long more? All right? And this second time round, they, they will be prepared. So the parables Jesus spoke here all relate to the Jews, to Israel. So when you put these uh, five parabolic illustrations together, it's emphasizing the following principles. Watchfulness, like the fig tree illustration. When you see the fig tree, you see leaves, watch, because it's a change of season. The fig tree illustration. Jesus is telling Israel, watch. Preparedness, Christ returned compared with those in the days of Noah. Must be prepared. Be prepared. Then the two men and the two women, the principle of separation, consequences that will follow accordingly. How we'll be separated. And finally, in the, uh, in the last two parables, uh, faithfulness and wisdom. The two parables are the faithful and wise house servant. Okay? Now we go on to Matthew chapter 25. All right? I hope and I, uh, that you will actually read all right, the entire chapter 24 and 25 verse by verse. Okay? The entire Matthew 25 talks about three sections. Two parables and then the judgment of the Gentiles. All right, two parables and the judgment of the Gentiles. Firstly, uh, so Matthew 25 is a continuation of the flow of Matthew 24. The context from Matthew 24 is about what? It's about the Jews in the tribulation period. The parables of Matthew 25 has to be consistent. It relates to Israel and not the church. The parables of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents relate to Israel. It relates to Jesus' second coming, not the rapture. And it relates to the judgment, the judgment of the sheep and the goat, all right, that will take place after the second coming when Jesus began to establish the millennial kingdom, all right, to, that will follow. And at the time of the tribulation, the church is not here. The church will only come back to reign with Christ at the millennial, uh, in the second coming in the battle of Armageddon. Now, the Jews, the Israel, they missed Jesus' first coming because of their unbelief. And because of their unbelief, they were judged temporarily in AD 70 when the temple and Jerusalem were destroyed. Now, the Lord is speaking to them that they need to be, be, be prepared for His second return so that they will escape final judgment and to enter into the blessing in the millennial messianic kingdom. Israel was not prepared and ready when Jesus came the first time. But the remnant Jews, they will be prepared and ready when He arrives the second time. Satan is fully aware of this and in the last message, when we went through Revelation chapter 12, he will go all out to wipe out the remaining remnant Jews. So that the prophecy here, the promises of God to Israel cannot be fulfilled. He's trying to do that by wiping out every single Jew. When there's no Jews remaining, what is there to, uh, to anticipate the second coming? All right? And which is why God will supernaturally protect them. As we learned last week, He will supernaturally provide for them, especially in the last three and a half years. So, the parable of the ten virgins. All right? So, we have to look at this word upon word. 
Matthew 25 is from verse uh, all the way, all right? Uh, but I'll just show you a few verses of Matthew 25, verse 1 to 6. Pay attention to this verse uh, that is in blue. Then, all right? That means it is a continuation. Then, all right? Then it talks about the kingdom of heaven shall be likened. Okay, let me elaborate this. So, when Jesus used the words then, the context then suggests a continuation of what Jesus has been talking about. What was he talking about in Matthew 24? The many signs and the sign of all the events leading to his second coming. He talked about all, it all in Matthew 24, the beginning of chapter 25, then, all right, is a continuation. Then he says, the kingdom of heaven. This phrase is commonly found in gospels, the gospel of Matthew, which was written largely for the Jews, for Israel. When they talk about the kingdom of heaven, all right? You're talking about the kingdom of heaven on earth, referring specifically to the 1,000 years of the millennial reign and rule of Christ. So in the mind of the Jews, they are looking forward to the Messiah in His second coming. What are they looking for? For Jesus to reign on earth, for the Messiah to reign on earth as promised to them. And even after Jesus' resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples were asking the Lord Jesus, Lord, when will you establish your kingdom on earth? See, they were still looking for an earthly kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ. Then he says, uh, verse 1 again, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened. Likened means in comparison. It is similar to, alright? Likened to what? To ten virgins. Let's break this down, alright? So likened to ten virgins is an illustration referring to those who will be judged in order to qualify to be in the kingdom when the bridegroom returns after his wedding. Who can enter the millennial kingdom? Who can join the Messiah in this millennial kingdom? The question is, on what basis will Israel be judged? On what basis will Israel be judged? The answer from this parable, the parable of the ten virgins, is preparedness. Israel is brought back to the land at the end of days, today, all right? Uh, since 1948, and legally they are there as a nation, for a judgment to see who is prepared and who is unprepared the second time for the coming of the Messiah. The focus is on Israel in these last days of the tribulation as described earlier on in Matthew chapter 24. And at the very start of the seven tribulation years, there is already very strong witness, very strong testimony given to Israel during the tribulation. How do we know? Matthew 24, 14, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They'll be saved immediately after about the rapture, alright? They're going to be so zealous for God. They'll know God as the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, covenant keeper, alright? They'll be so zealous, filled, and anointed to preach the gospel to the entire world. The 144,000 evangelists. Many signs and wonders will be done. And on top of that, God will send the two witnesses, most probably Elijah and Moses. Elijah representing the prophets and Moses representing the law. Both are very recognized by Israel, by every Jew. You talk about Moses and Elijah, they know. They know about it. They knew about it during Jesus' time on earth. The prepared will enter the millennial kingdom. The unprepared will be excluded. This is the basis for the salvation for Israel. The basis of salvation for the Jew. 
which is faith in God plus their works of faith to demonstrate their faith in God. Unlike the church, the church we are saved, all whether Jew or Gentile, when we believe in Jesus, sola fide, faith only, because it's by the mercy and the grace of God. The ten virgins represent the entire nation of Israel. The ten virgins are divided into two groups of five each. Remember, this is an illustration. The kingdom of heaven likened to ten virgins. One group are the believing and the prepared Israel. Faith and works. Demonstrated by the fact that they have all reserves. They were waiting. And it's a long wait. All right? It's seemingly a very long wait for the second coming of the Messiah. The other group did not prepare. And they represent unbelieving Israel. This is the standard. This is known to Israel between God's dealings with Israel. This cannot refer to the church. Why? Because the church is one chaste virgin. The church is the bride of Christ, mentioned in 2 Corinthians 11.2. But here are 10 virgins, bridesmaids, waiting for the bridegroom to return. I'm going to give you another scripture to substantiate this. It was to my horror, I was just reading it just about a week ago. All right, there was one commentary by a website that, that talks about a verse-by-verse uh, uh, exposition of scriptures. And I was just going through that for Matthew 24. And this, whoever, this author says that the ten virgins represent the entire church. Just think for yourself, all right? The ten virgins cannot. The bridegroom is not coming back for ten virgins. The church is always the bride of Christ. The church is one whole. One head, one body, all right? Um, this is the verse. Luke 12, 35 to 37. The same illustration between the master and the servants. He told, he told the servants, let your waist be girded. That means with a towel around the waist, ready to serve the master and the household. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Always ready, all right? If your master is searching for something in the dark, your lamp is ready to light up uh, the dark area in the house. Verse 36 of Luke 12, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. Every servant that is worth their salt, so to speak, is always prepared to serve their master. That is the responsibility of a servant. You yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding. See, this is where in the earlier message, when I did it in 2009, we must understand the Jewish wedding. So the parable of the ten virgins, they are not waiting for the, for the bridegroom to marry them. How can one bridegroom come back and marry ten virgins? Think for yourself. The bridegroom is returning from the wedding. The wedding would have already occurred in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Then Jesus in Revelation 19, He comes back with the church, His bride. And you yourselves be like men. So the ten virgins represent Israel to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. When you will return from the wedding, that when He comes and knocks on the door, knocks on who? On Israel. That they may open to Him immediately. Verse 37 confirms it. Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when He comes, will find watching and ready. Okay? The church will be raptured before the tribulation. The church is saved by grace through faith alone. That is, we are trophies of the mercy and the grace of God. We're such a privileged group. And which is why we love the Lord, which is why we worship Him. When we appreciate our salvation, 
Similarly, the entire church will be raptured, will be raptured by grace, regardless of your end time views. Why? Our salvation is based on the finished works of Christ on the cross, not on your view of when Jesus is going to come back. Not on your views about rapture or second coming. Right? So we have to be very clear. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. He is our cornerstone of our faith. That's the basis of our salvation, not your end time views. No other qualification of spirituality or carnality is needed for the rapture of the church. There were earlier teachings, and this is one of the mistakes I made in the early years, that only the overcomers will be raptured, not so. Every born-again believer, every blood-bought believer, every spirit-filled believer, sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are a part of the church, you will be raptured. Alright? Rapture is not a reward. Rapture is not a reward for faithfulness or so forth. It's free gift as salvation. However, this is where I will differentiate from people who just preach that we are saved by grace, we can live our lives any old way we want. We can't. In all the admonition about the rapture, we are always told to live soberly, righteously, godly. In all the admonition, we are told to watch and prepare. Why? Because there's the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ will determine rewards and judgments of the believer. Romans 14.10 tells us, the whole chapter of Romans 14 is about judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. All right? I've already done an entire uh, message on this, about the judgment seat of Christ. There will be a day of accountability for every Christian. How we live our lives. All right? Our salvation is secured. And that's why John says in 1 John 2, that we will not be ashamed. We will not be ashamed at His coming. There's a day of accountability. So we cannot live our lives any other way we want. Okay? The parable of the talents. Again, uh, the entire passage is Matthew 25, 14 to 30. I just want to pick up uh, the, verse 14. Again, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like. Here is an illustration, it's a parable. All right? Jesus is not introducing anything new. It's like, it's an illustration. All right? A man traveling and he gave to different servants different talents, different amount of money to be stewards over. So this parable of the talents deals with the whole issue of faithfulness. This is how a true son of the kingdom, God is preparing Israel for the messianic reign and rule of Jesus on earth, where he will reign and they will all serve him as his servants, so to speak. All right? So a true son will always be faithful to his Lord and be a worthy servant, not a worthless servant. So servants will be evaluated by how they dispense their responsibilities. Those found faithful, they'll be rewarded. They'll be rewarded with greater responsibility. They'll be rewarded with greater wealth. They'll be rewarded all this during the future reign of the king upon the earth. The ones who do not inherit it will be shut off from even an opportunity for entrance. So for the Jews, it is, salvation is by faith and works. Here, works of faithfulness, preparedness. The parable relates to Israel's accountability before God for their stewardship that will occur in conjunction with His second coming. Same principle as Sermon on the Mount, faithfulness and preparedness. For Israel, for the Jews, character is manifested by works. The same principle will be applied in the judgment of the nations. 
which we'll talk about in a moment. So big picture, God has always looked to Israel and His covenant with them to have faith in God demonstrated by their works of faith. When they rejected God, the Father rejected Jesus as the Messiah, when they resisted the Holy Spirit, the church was revealed to the Apostle Paul, we are part of the church. Where God says we are saved by grace through faith only, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right? We are trophies of the grace of God. But how we live, our works will be at the judgment seat of Christ. You see the difference between Israel and the church? Which is why in Hebrews, he says that now this new covenant is the better covenant for our sake. It's a better covenant for us based on better promises as contrasted with the Jews, as contrasted with God's original covenant with Israel. Finally, the sheep and goat judgments. Matthew 25, verse 31, uh, all the way to 46. But I'll just show you the first few verses. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, this refers to Jesus' second coming and all the holy angels with Him, all right? Then He will sit on the throne of His glory. This is the beginning of His 1,000 years reign in the millennial kingdom. And the nations... That's what we say is the judgment of the nations. Here you go, verse 32. The nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them. Who is the them? The nations, one from another. Oh, because in nations are, is a, the word agnos, people's group. People, all right? And as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. This is after the second coming of Christ. All Israel, the elect, they are gathered. The Lord Jesus sits on His throne. The dividing process using analogy of the sheep and the goat. Okay, so who are the sheep? The sheep Gentiles are those who have been good to the Jews during the tribulation. The sheep Gentile nations are those who defended the Jews at the risk of their lives. They fed them in the desperate times. They visited them in prison. These are the safe Gentile believers. Safe during the uh, uh, post-rapture all the way through the seven tribulation years. And they are known as the chief Gentiles. They are saved believers, verse 37, after the mid-tribulation, whose brethren, and they considered the, the Jews their brethren, of, of, of whom they protected and aided, verse 40. All right? Revelation 6, 11, is this phrase, the tribulation saints, their fellow servants, and their brethren. We contrast the, Gentile, uh, the sheep Gentile saved believers from the good Gentiles. The good Gentiles are those who persecuted the Jews. The good Gentiles are those that are aligned with the Antichrist. The good Gentiles are those who rejected the Jews and did no good to the Jews. The good Gentiles are accordingly judged as rebelling against God. So the line is very clearly drawn in the seven tribulation years, and especially in the last three and a half years, between the sheep and the goat. So there are three different groups at this judgment of the nations. Firstly, the unsaved followers of the Antichrist. They are called the goats, the goat nations, the goat believers. What will happen to them? They are thrown into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be excluded from entering the millennial kingdom. 
they'll be immediately judged, all right, and thrown into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then we have two other groups left. The Gentile believers, they are called the sheep, all right? The Gentile believers, they survive martyrdom during the tribulation years. They call to the sheep, and the Gentile believers, the sheep, they are the ones who minister to the remnant Jews, whom they call brethren. They will go into the millennium, the 1,000 years. The brethren, who are the brethren whom the sheep befriended? They are the remnant believing Jews. They will also go into the millennium. Jesus calls them my brethren. All right? And this phrase, my brethren, is also used in Revelations. Pay attention to two, uh, another thing. The bodies of category two, the Gentile believers and the remnant Jews who entered the millennium, they are not translated like you, yours and mine. When we are raptured, our corrupt mortal bodies will be incorruptible, immortal and glorified when we are raptured, but not these people. So they enter into the 1,000 years millennial kingdom, all right, which is near perfect and they go on to populate the earth. That means they will marry, they will have children, and so forth. Isaiah 65 says that if someone dies 100 years old, they're supposed to live for hundreds of years all the way. So if they die 100 years, they die premature. It'll be back to the days of Genesis 1 to Genesis 6, where men live for hundreds of years. The conditions then will be near perfect. And then for those who were born, because they continue with their physical bodies now, our bodies are, their bodies are still corrupt and mortal, alright? There's healing available uh, in Jerusalem. There'll be the tree of life and so forth. And what will happen is at the end of the 1,000 years, when Satan is released temporarily, he will lead some of this to rebel against God. But that, that will be immediately, totally squashed, alright? At the end of the 1,000 years. So, We've gone through Matthew 24 and 25. We'll journey it well, all right? Some of you have not fallen asleep. Okay. <laughs> so, I was watching this video just a few days ago, and it was a pro prophecy roundtable. Some of you are familiar with some of these things. Amir Safati, all right? He's a Messianic Jew, okay? Uh, he has a ministry called uh, Israel Now or something like that. Uh, with Jen Markel, I think she's also a Messianic Jew, and uh, a pastor from, I think, uh, from the US, a guy called Barry Stecken. And they were just discussing this whole topic about post-rapture. What will happen after rapture? It will be terrible times. It will be a time of devastation, of dissension, of disease, of disasters, of death, of delusion, the sun turning black, the moon turning into blood, the stars forming from the, from the sky, the world in a chaotic mess, devastating earthquakes, <clears throat> rampant lawlessness. The restrainer is gone. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the church. Mountains and islands move. The ocean becomes blood. Water becomes poison. Many long to die, and at that time, many will long to die, but they will be unable to die. They cannot die. Demons running unchecked because the church, the Holy Spirit in the church has already been raptured. Satan has free reign to run Amok, to run Havoc. Lawlessness will be at its ultimate. Demons running unchecked. Drugs bending the minds of people. A lot of people will be on drugs. There will be an increase of sorcery and witchcraft. More than a billion people will perish there'll be 
a satanic trinity, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all right, uh, with Satan. There'll be a global government by then and a global religion by then. Uh, we mentioned about Mystery Babylon. There are two parts of Mystery Babylon. One part is religious Mystery Babylon. This is the one world religion. The other part is the commercial Babylon, the world economic system. There will be the ruthless Antichrist who will be captured alive and thrown into the lake of fire. And today's COVID-19 climate is just setting the stage. It's just setting the stage for all these things that happen. All right? What is common in the world now? What are they talking about? COVID-19. What else are they talking about? Vaccination. What kind of vaccines? All right? From Pfizer to Moderna to Johnson & Johnson to the China one and this and that. Should you get vaccinated? Should you not get vaccinated? All kind of, these are all the things that's common. And you can see all that's happening in the world. All right? And recently there was this thing about WhatsApp. All right, don't go into WhatsApp because of what, your, your privacy and so forth. So you, what do a lot of people do? Do Telegram. Do Signal. Do all kinds of uh, uh, means of communication. The whole world is being connected. I can't travel to Africa now, alright? But for the last few months, every month I'm doing a Zoom session. I just did it a, a few nights ago. All on Zoom from Burkina Faso, Gabon, Senegal, uh, Chad, and so forth. They're all there. And some of them gathered in their churches in groups, alright? And doing all this teaching over Zoom. Same thing with my Haggai International. From the east all the way to Korea, all the way through Africa, all the way to South America, they are there. We're all connected. These are all the common things. Pay attention. All these are precursors setting up the stage. And what we were being warned earlier about Noah and the flood, when it happens, it's going to happen so fast. I was wondering how to end. I need to find a, a, a passage about the rapture. And here, this is the passage which is our scripture meditation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. The rapture is a mystery. We should not all sleep. That means die forever. We should all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. This last trumpet is not the trumpet judgment. It's a special trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall all, the church, be changed at the rapture. And again, accompanying every time Paul talks about the rapture is the exhortation. And what is this exhortation there? What will keep us on the right path? What will keep us ready for the rapture? Therefore, Paul says, my beloved brethren, my beloved sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. So I summarise these things as these three words. We need to be steady. We need to be steadfast. We need to be serving. Steady how? Be watchful and wise. I was thinking this last one month, I know of two Christian families. I know of a young man who came and says, oh, I need to talk to my mentor and ask somebody to help to mediate between me and my parents, between my wife and my parents. Alright? And then I see another situation in the same. I think of, of believers, pastors, ministry workers, they are offended. And when they are not growing spiritually, why? They're not watching and wise. They're just doing work of the ministry. People serving in, I don't know, uh, giving meals to the poor. People uh, just being hands and feet. Serving as ushers. People serving and, and just joining cell group. But they're not watching. And they're doing many things that are not wise. Easily offended. Easily hurt. Not steady. 
tossed to and fro all the time. To be steady is to be tied. Not only steady, there's the other word. We need to be steadfast. We need to be anchored. Steadfast, immovable. How can you be steadfast and immovable? We have to be rooted to the Word and connected to the Holy Spirit. I know of missionaries, leaders who serve in the church, elders who don't even want to pray together. In one church I was just talking, talking with, how do you go about doing the work of the church when you don't pray together as the leadership of the church? When you're not connected to the Holy Spirit, don't take all these things for granted. The things we pray for in BBDC, anointed worship, anointed word, anointed altar. And finally, serving the Lord, how? Be fully plugged in the body life. In essence, what is all this? In essence, all this means we are anchored in Jesus. We're anchored to the head. He's the head of the church. He's our Lord and our master. And we are anchored to the body of Christ, the church. He is our cornerstone. And when you are anchored, Ephesians says the life of God flows in us. We are connected by every joint, every ligament. If you are not connected to the head, Jesus is your Lord and Master. If you are not connected to the body of Christ, if you are not plugged into the body of Christ in His kingdom, you will become a casualty. You will not be ready. You will not be steady. So the admonition as we've done doing this whole eight-part series, and we'll continue this third quarter, God willing. How shall we live? There is a day of accountability. Thank God we are living on better promises and better covenant. But there will be a day of accountability. Will we be ashamed? What John says in 1 John 2, will we be ashamed when the rapture occurs? Because immediately after the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ. These are the three guarantees that will keep us fighting the good fight of faith, finishing the course of life, and not falling. Only He can keep us from falling.